Uh, good morning, everybody. My name is Jordan. I'm one of the pastors here. Very grateful to be with you guys. Uh, one of the best things about being a pastor here is I get a chance to do people's weddings. I married a few people here. Uh, my success rate is pretty good. Don't mess it up for me. Um, uh, one of the best things about doing their weddings are you get the best view in the entire house. You get to see the bride and the groom making their commitment to each other. And I've done enough weddings now that I can tell who the criers are going to be. It doesn't matter how fierce she came down the aisle. Uh, it doesn't matter how brolic the dude is standing up there. I could just look at somebody, and it's the way they bend their legs, and I'm like, oh, yeah, he's going to go down, this guy. Uh, and they always cry at the, the exact time, every single time in the ceremony. It's always when someone is pledging eternal, permanent, durable love for one another. That's when the fire hydrant is let loose, the shoulder bop starts to happen, and they bend over, and they start to cry. That's one of the most beautiful things about weddings is uh, this, uh, this promise of love, and not a love that goes away uh, overnight. The vows are for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health. I think deep down inside, we all know that love makes real, permanent, durable promises to people. It would be really weird if you went to a wedding and someone said, in health, for sure, but in sickness, I don't know, depending on how sick they are, I just don't know that I can promise that. For richer, yes, I could definitely do that. But for poorer, how poor are we talking? Like student loan poor, or we're going to be on his parents' Netflix account till we're 50 poor? Like how poor are we talking about? If you went to a wedding where someone was not willing to make this permanent commitment that didn't matter what the circumstances were, uh, you would probably feel like you wasted uh, a good night out and certainly you wasted the wedding gift uh, because that wedding, that marriage would not last. At its very core, real love, the Bible says, instinctively desires permanence. Now, it makes a lot of sense that in the eighth chapter of Romans, when Paul is kind of bringing this to a close, uh, when he talks about the love of God, he describes it as something that is permanent and durable. More specifically, that nothing will ever be able to separate you from that love. Nothing, not one single thing on this entire planet will ever be able to separate you from God's love for you. And here's what it says in the scripture, who can separate us from the love of Christ? And this is Paul's last, last rhetorical question in the chapter that he's been going through on what it looks like to live life as a follower of Jesus. Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, because of you we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, Paul highlights three different times in this passage of scripture, God's love. And in verse 35, he talks about the love of Christ. In verse 37, he says, through him who loved us. And in verse 39, he says, the love of Christ that is, uh, the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And here's what Paul is making an argument today to say, the love of God is something that nothing in this entire world will be able to separate you from that. And if we get that, that would radically transform the way you lived your life. 
Now, one of the main problems, if not the biggest problem, that uh, we can read a scripture as profound as this, that the God of the universe makes us this pledge and this promise that his vows to us are that he would never, ever leave us or forsake us. But yet, too many times, we feel alone. God's promises to us is that nothing will ever separate us from our love, uh, from his love for us. A lot of times when our life is not as buttoned up as we would like, uh, we live in fear that God is one step away from withdrawing his love from us. I think the main problem is that we just don't understand what love is. We have a lot of definitions, and if we were to pass around a survey today of what is love, uh, you'd probably get a lot of different definitions of what it is, none of which are what the Bible are talking about when Paul talks about nothing being able to separate us from God's love. Uh, the first thing we need, to, we need to do today is to define what is love all about. Now, a lot of times when people think of love, we think about uh, the love of God as something that's cheap. It's something that is going to love me no matter what, and no matter what I do, it's basically just going to be there and turn a blind eye, and it's going to just affirm me no matter what happens in my life. Deep down inside, if you think about love like that, you're resisted because you know something that flimsy and that cheap has no power to actually change you. When the Bible talks about love, it's not talking about this really flimsy and cheap thing. It's talking about a commitment to us that will last the test of time, but it is deeply committed to us uh, and committed to our growth and committed to our change and committed to us being conformed more and more to look like Jesus. Paul, I mean, Tim Keller says it like this, love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but keeps us in denial about our flaws. Love without truth is not love. Truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. God's saving love in Christ, however, is marked by both radical truthfulness about who we are and also radical, unconditional commitment to us. This merciful commitment strengthens us to see the truth about ourselves and repent, which means to turn to God. The conviction and repentance moves us to cling and to rest in God's mercy God's grace. The love that the scripture is talking about this morning is not just a sentimental thing that just affirms you nonstop, but that will keep you in denial about your flaws. Uh, thank God also that God is not just slapping us in the face with truth bombs left and right. God's love for us is full of grace and truth. Uh, I remember when my older brother was about nine years old, um, my mother came home and we had uh, dinner one night and uh, for dinner, we had like steamed carrots, not my favorite food. I'm not a vegetable eater. Carrots, in my opinion, should be raw, get a little crunch to them. Steamed, it kind of, it's not my favorite thing. But um, my mother served us a food with some, you know, meatloaf or something else. My brother ate around everything but the carrots, dropped his fork and said, I'm done. My mother had time that day. She was like, no, 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 you ain't done. You will not leave this table. You will not eat another thing. Nothing else is coming through them lips <laughs> until you eat these carrots. The standoff ensued. My brother sat there at the dinner table, and he was there for hours and hours and hours. And since it was a school night, they actually ended up letting him go to bed. And I think he went to bed that night with a little bop in his step thinking he had one. Uh, and the next morning, I was in the kitchen pouring my Frosted Flakes. My mother came downstairs, took the carrots out of the refrigerator, <laughs> put them joints in the microwave. 22 seconds, you are not eating another thing, Papa, until those carrots go in your mouth. 
Real love, and we, I've never doubted for two seconds that my mother loves us. Real love is not turning a blind eye to your behavior. Real love is committed to you despite your bad behavior. We've talked about the gospel, and the gospel is not God loves me because I'm good. The gospel is also not God loves me no matter what. The gospel is because God loves you, he will make you good. The love that God promises us here in Romans 8 is not a love that will leave you alone. It is a love that is full of grace and truth. Uh, when scripture describes who Jesus is, this is how it describes him. It says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of what? Grace and truth. If you want to get a good understanding of what love is like, look at Jesus. And what is Jesus full of? He is full of grace. One of the things that hurts my heart when you think about Christians, and if you're new back to church, um, man, let me just apologize to the way that a lot of people represent Jesus. There is no grace. They're so interested in truth, but they don't care how you hear it. They just want to get it off their chest. There are other people who, to combat that, swing the pendulum so far on the other side, will tell you that nothing matters. The only thing that matters is that God loves you, and both of them are really wrong. God, Jesus has come to this earth, earth and, and shows us what love is like. That love is full of grace and truth. And that's the type of love that can really change you. Now, a lot of other times when we think about love, um, not only do we think it's flimsy, sometimes um, when we think about it, we think about the feeling uh, of love. Or we think about what I would like to call infatuation. Now, anybody who's uh, ever uh, been in a puppy love relationship, raise your hand. No, I'm kidding. Don't do that. Don't. You might be in one right now, and I don't want to make that awkward for you. Uh, but love and infatuation are not the same thing. Someone who's experiencing infatuation might really feel like they deeply, deeply love someone, and they really just met them last week. The difference between infatuation and love is that infatuation is a short-lived passion for someone, whereas love is a deep affection for someone that lasts the test of time. If you want to know whether or not something was love, sit back a little bit and see what happens. Infatuation is based on limited knowledge, but love knows all and is committed to the real you. I was talking to uh, a, a young dude, and he had just met this woman, and this dude nose was wide open, and he was telling me all about this woman that he just met, and like he was about to move across the country, and I was like, oh, like we had just talked last week, and you didn't say anything about her. When did you meet? And they had just met like two or three days before that, and he already had planned his move to the boondocks somewhere else. Um, and I didn't say anything. It's not my job to shoot somebody down. Hey, it might work. Uh, you never know. But I knew that what he was really experiencing from her was just a real small snapshot of who she was. And my hunch was that eventually he's going to start to realize more and more about who she is. She's going to realize more and more about who he is. And it might not last as powerfully as they think it's going to last. Sure enough, a couple of weeks passed and months passed, and the two are nowhere to be found together. And I, and I think um, a lot of times when we think about love, we think about uh, the relationships that we've had or that our friends have had, where they've made crazy commitments to people, but they didn't really know them. When scripture speaks about God's love for you, uh, if you back up a couple of verses in verse 29, what does it say? For you are foreknown. It's not saying that God only knows a small snippet of who you are and is committed to you. It's saying God knows everything about you, including the things that you don't even know about you just yet. And God still pursues love and commitment. 
Infatuation is focused on what you want from them, but love is focused on sacrifice. God's love is focused on his sacrifice and what he's hoping for you to be. Say that again. Infatuation is focused on what you are getting from them. God's love is sacrificial and it's focused on what, through giving you things, what he's hoping for you to become. Uh, there's a scripture, 1 John 4 and 10, where it says, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that God loves us and sent his son to be a sacrifice for us. If you want to know what real life is, love is, don't measure it in the sense of what you're getting from someone, measure it in what you're willing to give. I've talked to so many people, and this is like a really bright red warning whenever someone's getting ready to get married, and I ask them, what do you love about the other person, or you know, why do you want to get married, and say, oh, because I love them, and I say, all right, great, hit me, what's love? And they start to tell me all of the things that the other person does for them, they make me feel so good, and they scratch my back, I got poor flexibility, and they get my back. And they talk about all of these things that the other person does for them, and I'm like, man, that's not love, that's certainly not loving them. That's loving yourself. When scripture speaks about God's love, he's not talking about an infatuation where all your focus is on me, 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 but it's measured in what God was willing to give us. Paul says this in verse 32, um, and if, if God didn't spare his own son, how will he not graciously give us all things? God's love is measured by what he's willing to give us, not what he's trying to take from us. And lastly, infatuation expects perfection, but love accepts a person that has flaws and is committed to them to make them better. Infatuation will never accept a person's flaws. And this is why in a lot of relationships, people argue like crazy because they're constantly trying to fix the other person because in their brains, they cannot tolerate that this person has real serious flaws. Whenever I do premarital counseling, um, I tell people, you need a strategy for how you are going to handle when this person disappoints you not devastate you. I don't think any of us can, put, can plan or prepare to be devastated, but every last person, you need a strategy for how you will plan to deal with someone after they disappoint you, after you have come to know who they are and it really disappoints you, things about their character, things about who they are deep down inside that you just would love for them to change. The measure of your love for someone is your willingness to commit to them despite their flaws, not uh, run away from them because they have flaws. When someone's infatuated, they'll get really disappointed, but love accepts a person who is flawed and will remain committed to them, to their growth, and to that union. This is why uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 and 7 and 8, love, it bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and look at this next word, it endures all things. The love that God is promising us has an endurance to it. Uh, this past couple of weeks, um, we went traveling, and I decided, you know what? I'm going to pack my running sneakers, and I am going to put some miles in um, to, you know, get back to my college, my college weight. I got out, and it was pretty humid, so this was going against me. And I realized very quickly that my endurance now is not what it once was uh, back in the day. With no endurance, you can start off with the best intentions and all of the motivation in the world but pretty soon you're gonna hit a wall. Scripture here is telling us that God has endurance, that God can push through the wall, get his second, third, fourth, 2,000th win to persist in, our, in his love and commitment to us. The last thing that makes this scripture really hard to receive uh, for some people 
is that you have been in a relationship with people, maybe it's your parents, maybe it was a spouse, where they have promised to love you in a certain way or should have loved you in a certain way and they really disappointed you and they really let you down. Uh, I remember speaking to one of my cousins uh, right before their divorce and listening to them break down on the phone, very confused at why their spouse wouldn't even take a phone call or was not willing to go to counseling. They had already found someone else and they were moving on. Even though they were promised forever, they got something much different. If you've experienced life where you have gotten broken promises from people, to hear this promise that God will never leave you or forsake you, that God's love will endure, to hear that nothing in all creation can separate you from God's love, it might be hard to receive because the people closest to you didn't live up to their end of the bargain. And I want to say this next part really gently, but what, what God promises us here in this scripture is not reliant on other people. Bible tells us in Isaiah 55, 8 through 9, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, um, and your ways are not my ways. This is the Lord's declaration, for as heaven is higher than earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Bottom line, God does not operate that we do. His ways and his thoughts are higher than ours, and God is good to make his promise. So if it's true that um, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, not affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, and in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, and if neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing, if none of these things will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, then that is meant to do certain things inside of your life. Uh, it's meant to be more than just uh, a good thought to take home, but something that can radically actually change the way uh, you and I approach the world. Uh, before we get a little into how it should be impacting us, uh, I, I want us to pay attention to the weight of how Paul's original audience would have heard these words. So we hear words like famine, and I think about when Seamless doesn't deliver Korean fried chicken past 125th Street. I'm like, that's suffering. That's, that's, that's a challenge that I need to live through. New Yorkers don't know anything about famine, for sure. Uh, if anything, we have nothing but choice all the time. Famine, as Paul would have uh, described it to his audience, his original audience would have understood this to be something that was severe and wiped out entire villages and killed uh, people and killed entire people groups. Famines were so bad in biblical days that people would willingly and voluntarily sell themselves and their children into slavery just to survive a famine. So when Paul says this word famine, that famine could not separate you from, from the love of God, he's saying think about something that would make you so desperate that you would willingly sell yourself and your kids into slavery, something that uh, profound and that powerful, even something that uh, big could not separate you from the love of God. Paul also talks about something called the sword. And what does that mean? Uh, the best modern day analogy for us would be thinking about ISIS or, or Boko Haram. What would happen is you would have people who would uh, come and they would put to death the entire village. And when Paul was saying that not even the sword could separate you from the love of God, he's saying think about how nervous you would be if you heard the Humvees coming through with ISIS uh, and machine guns on the back of it. Essentially, here's what Paul is saying. Think about your worst nightmare. Thinking about the worst, the worst case scenario. Think about the thing that seems like there is no opposition 
for it. Nothing in all of creation can separate you from the love of God. Nothing that exists, here's what Paul is saying, nothing that exists can do it because God's love is much bigger and better and more pervasive and more controlling than a famine or even the sword. So Paul tells us that nothing can ever separate us from the love of God. And if this is true, man, if this is true, think about all the ramifications of what your life would look like if nothing could separate you from God's love. I think the first thing is that this scripture is giving us a call to be vulnerable uh, to God and with God's people. If it's true that nothing in all of creation can actually separate you from the love of God, then that should allow you to come to God transparently and to really be vulnerable with him. Vulnerability is uh, basically emotional exposure. And uh, the sociologist Brene Brown, she describes it like this. Vulnerability is about showing up and being seen. It's tough to do that when, you're, when we're terrified about what people might see or think. When we're fueled by fear of what other people think, or that gremlin that's constantly whispering, you're not good enough in our ear, it's tough to show up. We end up hustling for our worthiness rather than standing in it. To know God's love is steadfast and uninterrupted allows us to be vulnerable. Uh, so many times when I talk to people in our congregation, uh, I see that most of our, many of our spiritual lives are the opposite of that. It's constantly worrying about God having a grading sheet and that we would be found to have uh, C's and D's instead of A's. And a lot of times what that does is it keeps us in denial. It won't even let us admit that we're wrong. It won't, admit, it won't let us admit how much we need. And it won't let us even, certainly doesn't let us confess and open ourselves up to other people. And here's the problem. God is the one that actually has the power to change you. God is the one that actually has the power to give you passion and fire. Uh, these past couple of months have been pretty personally disappointing for me um, with my son being born. I feel like I'm in a constant state of just fatigue. We're always tired. And there's so many things that I wanted to do that I'm just not doing, whether it's reading books or praying more or being more organized or answering emails or, or whatever um, it is that I want to do. And in a lot of ways, um, it makes me feel um, like, God, I'm, I feel like I'm just losing my fire. A couple of weeks ago, I started to pray, God, give me a fire for you because right now I don't feel like I have one. Ironically, coming to God saying that you have no fire is coming to the only one that has the matches in his hand. And when we withhold ourselves out of fear that God is going to judge us or that God is going to remove his love, we remove ourselves from the one who can actually help us and change us. Now, not only is it a call to be vulnerable, but it's also a call to be courageous. Uh, the second implication of the scripture is a call to be courageous. If it is true that nothing in all of creation can separate you from God's love, then you and I should operate with courage. Courage essentially comes from being able to trust in something that will never fail. Uh, this, the entire story of scripture, as a matter of fact, paints this picture that from the very beginning of exi your existence, from before you uh, were even a thought in your parents' mind, God had already ordained the times and the place of your inhabitants, Acts 17, 26. And God did this hoping that we would reach out for him because he is not far from any one of us. Ephesians 2.10 says that God has already prepared good things for you to do in advance, but a lot of us live so far behind what God is calling us to do, where God is calling us to be, what God is calling us to get involved in, because we're afraid to fail. If you knew that God's love for you was secure, no matter what, it would free us up to actually be courageous. 
This summer in our Bible study series, we've started to talk about what it means to be a Christian. In the first Bible study, we talked about it means that we are a royal priesthood, meaning we have access to God. In the same way that the priest stood on behalf of the entire people and went to God, had access, this means that you have access to God, not through me, not through a pastor. You have access to God. And the Bible tells us to come to God with, with, with boldness and confidence, knowing that we will find grace in a time of mercy. Now, if it's also true that uh, we can never be separated from God's love, uh, and it also means that the things that God has called us to do, you and I can actually do them, even if you can't see in and, your, in a, in and of yourself how you can accomplish them. Uh, last Bible study, we talked about everybody has a ministry and that God has, not just for me or people with a microphone in their hand, God has a ministry for every single last person in here. Not everyone has a, a public ministry where, you get, where you're quitting your job. Uh, I'm so glad that he doesn't operate like that because then there will be no more people to, to meet the, the people that you meet and the people you interact with on a single, every single day basis. God has a ministry for you. God has, and this Wednesday we're talking about what specific gifts that God has given each and at last every one of us. And here, here's where we're going. God has made you have access to him. God has given you a ministry. God has gifted you in certain ways. And I don't want you sitting on the sidelines in fear that you can do something or step in the wrong direction or that you're not really secure. Uh, last year I went zip lining. Um, anybody ever go on zip lining? It's a fun thing to do. Uh, and we, we went to North Carolina and the place where we went, you climbed up like 10 flights of stairs. My thighs were burning by the time I got up there. And the scariest part, even scarier than the view, is knowing that your life hangs in the balance of a 14-year-old kid checking Snapchat as he's securing. <laughs> as he is securing your, <laughs> the rope. And until I knew that 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 I was actually connected to this steel cable, I was not walking near the edge. But once I did, once I knew, and I double and triple checked, and I had his manager come and check real quick uh, <laughs> that I was really secure, then I was able to put the full weight of my life on this. Some of us are not putting the full weight of our lives on what God is calling us to do because we don't feel secure. This scripture is meant to let you know that God has bolted you into steel cables and that nothing will separate you. The blessing of the scripture is not a promise that you'll hold on to God. The blessing of the scripture is a promise that God will hold on to you. If the question of the scripture was what would separate me from my love from God, a lot, a whole lot. That's not what Paul is saying here. He's saying, what can separate you from God's love? And the answer to that is absolutely nothing. Jesus tells us this beautiful reminder in John 10 and 27. He says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish ever. And here's his promise. No one will snatch them out of my hand. You and I are kept by the love of God. We are not holding on to God. God is holding on to us because he is gracious. Uh, and that is a good thing that allows us to be courageous. And the last thing I think this should do to us is, man, I, I really hope that you read this and it, and it changes your perspective about what the love of God actually is. It's interesting that when Paul mentions uh, the love of God, he, he mentions it coexisting with, not replacing uh, trials and hardships and danger and famine and the sword. 
ancient Christians had an understanding of God and God's love that didn't remove obstacles, did not remove trials and tribulations, but it overcame them. Verse 37, Paul says something that's even more interesting. He tells us that we are more than conquerors. He's not just saying you can kind of survive these things. He's saying you are more than a conqueror through him who loved us. And, and I think if that's true, then it should change our perspective on what it means to be loved by God. Uh, there's a, we have a tendency to judge God's love based on what's going on around us. And this scripture serves as a reminder that God's love for us might not keep us from hardships, but it, we will never be separated from him in the midst of them. Uh, there's a story about a young guy years ago on a hot summer day in South Florida where a little boy decided to go for a swim. He was in such a, a, a hurry, he ran out the, backyard, out the back door, kicked off his socks, and jumped in the middle of a lake. His mother was watching from the kitchen as she saw him playing around and swimming and having a good time. And in her peripheral vision, she saw something that looked like an alligator. She screamed out to the son, ran outside, and her son finally heard her and she heard her warning him to come back and he turned around and booked it as hard as he could back to the shore. And as soon as he got to the shore, it was too late. The alligator got him by his legs. Just as he reached his mother, the alligator took him and from the dock, the mother grabbed her little boy by the arms and just as the alligator snatched his leg, they began an incredible tug of war. Now clearly the alligator is way stronger than the mother is, but the mother was much more passionate. A farmer happened to drive by and heard the screams, raced from his truck, took aim and shot the alligator. You know this is the South when people just have biscuits running around. <laughs> and remarkably, a few weeks later, the little boy survived. His legs were extremely scarred by the vicious attack, and one day a newspaper re reporter came by to talk about this wonderful story of uh, someone who survived an alligator attack. He says, hey, show me the scars on your leg. And the little boy says, yes, I have scars on my leg. But he also very proudly lifted up his arms to say, I want you to see the scars on my arms too. These are the scars from my mother who wouldn't let go. Scripture here does not promise you that you will not be scarred. Scripture promises you that you will have two sets of scars. God's love for us is too passionate to ever let anything separate us from him. We see that the clearest in um, Jesus getting to the cross and uh, Jesus going to the cross on our behalf. And Jesus going to the cross on our behalf is God screaming at us. Nothing in all of creation can ever separate you from my love. And I'm going to prove it to you. I'm going to give you my only son as a sacrifice in your place. Now, 2,000 years ago, Jesus gathered his closest friends and his followers for a meal that we call communion. And communion is a time to remember Jesus, the one who stood in our place and the one who came so that you and I would never have to taste separation from God. Jesus instructs his followers that uh, for those of us who follow him to as often as we come together to do this thing where we remember him and we take some grape juice and we take some bread and we dip the bread in the grape juice to remember his amazing sacrifice for us, the pledge of his love, the commitment of his love, the display and the evidence of his love in us. That love has been described in many ways. One of those ways is that it's unthinkable. It's never ending. Some people have even gone so far as to call it reckless. 
Now, there's a couple of definitions of reckless. One is uh, thoughtless or careless, and I, I don't think that's a definition I want us to think about today, but I want us to think about it in the sense of unimaginable. It's a type of love that is so far beyond our imagination that we don't have any other category for it. It's a type of love that when Jesus was walking to the cross, he was being punched and spit on, and they said, Jesus, prophesy to us now, who hit you? Jesus looked at them after they just hit him and spit on him and said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. That's unimaginable. It's a type of love that will have a hundred sheep. Ninety-nine of them are there huddled together, obeying the shepherd's voice. One goes away in disobedience, and the shepherd leaves the ninety-nine and goes after the one. Man, that is a beautiful, never-ending, reckless love of God that he has for us, and nothing in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from that love in Christ Jesus. Uh, if you have already placed your faith in Christ, I would love for you to come down and to receive communion during this next song. Uh, our communion servants can come up at this time uh, as we prepare to receive communion. If you don't know uh, where, you're, where you stand with your faith, maybe you haven't uh, given yourself to, to God, you've never committed yourself to a relationship with God, I would invite you to remain in your seat. Don't take communion because everybody else is, but just to think about what it would look like for you to trust and God and his amazing, reckless love. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, help us to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that nothing, not affliction, not, affliction, not distress, not persecution or famine or darkness or nakedness or danger or anything else, help us to know that we are more than conquerors through you, God, not in ourselves, but through you. Help us to be persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Amen.